China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is going. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Christoph Steinhardt, an assistant professor in the Department of East Asian Studies at the University of Vienna. Today we'll be discussing his recent article, Defending Stability Under Threat, Sensitive Periods and the Repression of Protest in Urban China. Christoph, thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. It's an honor. So I wanted to start by asking if you could tell us a little bit about your intellectual and academic background. Just put simply, how, how did you become interested in the study of China? Well, I, uh, I studied social science uh, in Germany. I'm, I'm, I'm German in Göttingen in Berlin. And I traveled to China for the first time in 2001 for, for private reasons. And um, I was fascinated by that country uh, because it was so different from everything that I've seen in, in, in Europe and, and, and the US. And I couldn't speak Chinese at that time. And I thought, okay, I, I want to go, come back here and uh, I want to be able to at least communicate a little bit with people. So yeah, that kind of sparked up the interest. Um, then I began doing my yeah, like sort of master uh, studies uh, in Berlin to, to focus on China topics, to carve out a, a niche um, for myself. I wrote my master's thesis um, on, on a China-related issue. Yeah, and then uh, I, I got a, a scholarship to study uh, Chinese uh, after my graduation. And uh, oddly enough, I uh, went to Hong Kong <laughs> to, to learn uh, Putonghua. Yeah, that, that was for private reasons as well, because my now uh, wife had a job there. <laughs> but it's possible. Right. So uh, did a, a year of Chinese and then I was thinking what to do. And then I, I knew that Hong Kong universities were quite good. I was an exchange student in Hong Kong before. And then I applied for PhD programs and ended up in the Department of uh, Government at Chinese University of Hong Kong doing my PhD there with uh, Professor Li Lianjiang. He had a great influence on me, so intellectually. Um, I just, as a side note, have to say the beginning of your journey is identical to mine because I went to China for the first time in 2001 in, in the fall uh, and had the same immediate reaction uh, and long-term reaction. I, I, I decided uh, when after that visit, or I should say during that visit, that I wanted to spend more time focusing uh, on the country. So we, we may have... Uh, we may have been in the same bar at the same time uh, in, in 2000 and 2001. Yeah, different, different China back then. Abs absolutely, uh, absolutely different China. So I want to spend the bulk of the conversation, obviously, talking about this great paper that, that you've written on how Beijing or the Chinese government responds to protests during sensitive periods. But I thought perhaps we could start by giving a broad overview of the state of the field of, of protest studies. I realized that, that in the short duration of the podcast, you can't cover it all, but I, I wonder if you could maybe spend a few minutes giving listeners a sense of where the field is in terms of protest studies. What are the big questions or big unanswered questions that are driving research? And then just as a follow-up, what's different uh, about the study of, of protest in China now, 10 years into Xi Jinping, then say what it was doing or, or the questions they were looking at in, in the Hu Jintao period. 
the contemporary study of protests, as it were, um, on, on China, I would say, started in, in the 1990s. So you had 1989, like this big shock, and of course, that, that created intellectual attention. Then for a while, I think people thought, okay, that, that's, that's it, there's no more... There's, there's no more protests in China. And then people began to note like, no, there's actually people taking to the streets and, and, and not too few. So part of this first kind of wave of post-89 uh, research uh, was, was done by people like, uh, like my supervisor, Dylan Yang, uh, Kevin O'Brien, uh, Liz Perry, and others. What they did was to basically rely on, 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 on case studies of protest site that for various reasons they happen to have access to. So they, they looked at the, you know, the, the mechanisms of how do people make their claims? How does the state respond? How could there be a protest in the first place? Because we thought like China's uh, such a repressive re regime now. Yeah, what they found was like, for instance, uh, yeah, there was a lot of protest. Um, people took to the streets to get their, their interests or their, their grievances aired or their interests, their, you know, to support their interests, but they were not necessarily opposed to the regime. So uh, that was one big thing that uh, was driven home, I think, by, by these kinds of studies. So O'Brien and Lee kind of summarized that in, in their concept of rightful resistance. So people sort of took the state at, at its word, the central Authorities um, proclaim a lot of um, nice-sounding policies that are not necessarily implemented as they are proclaimed, and that creates uh, tension at the bottom. And then people would resist against certain types of implementation uh, and try to get the attention of upper levels. So there's this kind of dynamic between central government, local government, and the people at the, at the grassroots. And then you have the, the local government and grassroots citizens kind of being opposed to each other under certain conditions. And the central government always chooses like whom, whom it supports, uh, sometimes local government, sometimes um, citizens. Right. So that is kind of the first wave um, that continued until the late 2000s, I'd say. Then we had another round of like protests also contention evolves and new kind of what we call repertoires emerged so over the 2000s you had a lot of like big events and you know for instance i don't know if you remember that in 2008 in wungan county um, people stormed the government headquarters and burned it down <laughs> or you had like a series of really big environmental protests so uh, people began to study uh, these kinds of events i also did something on environmental protests at the time and uh, then new sort of evidence became available. Um, that is perhaps the, the second or well, the third wave of um, contentious politics research in China. So this is also what, what this is part of, I would say. I and, and others noted that uh, for various reasons, I can say something about that later, more and more evidence of protest events emerged in the, in the public sphere. So we were wondering, okay, how can we... We answered a lot of questions based on case studies already, you know, the mechanisms of claim making, the me mechanisms of state response. But you always look at highly selective cases. Um, so now you have this you know, larger number of cases that you can access through the media, uh, various sources. So what can you do with that? So that is 
part of what I'm trying to do here. So you, this, this type of research is quantitative in nature, although it also has qualitative aspects, uh, and you answer different kind of questions. So for this case study research, you answer questions like how and why, how do people resist, what are the actual mechanisms, and this type of more survey-based, like survey type of research, you can ask questions of like how much, under what conditions, and so on. So it's a different, different types of questions being asked now. I want to now dig into the dig into the article. The first question is, so this is you've kind of hand hand coded. Maybe that's for for listeners. Maybe we just start there. Is how the heck do you do this research? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, if you allow me, I, I'm 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 gonna uh, step back a bit and and um, uh, tell you how I, I got to do that. So in my dissertation research, I, I studied how the Chinese elites, in a sense, uh, changed their discourse about the this growing wave of unrest after 1989. So during that time, I, I read like tons of leadership speeches and circulars, um, and also a lot of media reports uh, on protests and talked to like journalists and intellectuals and. One central finding was that that protest changed in a sense from a really from a non-issue that was really unspeakable to a rather openly discussed phenomenon over the over the two thousands and the development of the internet and new communication technologies played played a big role in in, in this uh, change. So, for instance, as I mentioned this Wuhan incident in 2008 splashed all over the internet. Another one in, in, in Dingzhou in, in Hebei in 2005, where farmers were kind of attacked by hired thugs also uh, emerged on the internet because if the farmers now they had video cameras and then they could record that and they smuggled the video cameras out to, to journalists um, who brought it in the news. At, the t at that time, there was still um, like really active investigative journalism going on in China. So that was part of the dissertation research. And the, the central government kind of responded to this in, in a two-pronged fashion. So on the one hand, they tried to get its local cadres and, and police forces to manage protests more professionally. So gave it a series of orders on how to, to handle like dissatisfied citizens and, and prevent their situations get out of hand. It ran a series of training sessions for local police chiefs, um, tell them, you know, how do you distinguish between uh, contradictions among the people and uh, contradictions with the enemy? You know, uh, a lot of Maoist uh, ideas actually in there. And I'm, I'm sure you're also familiar with that. And on the other hand, it also gave out like protesters sympathizing signals in the public sphere. So to sort of dissociate itself a little bit from violent repression and also put more pressure on local governments to respond more conditionally accommodating. Yeah, so that was kind of what I knew uh, in 2013 when I started my job at that time at China University. So I, I graduated at CHK and then was uh, I've been in Singapore and then came back to CHK. So that's the backstory. So I had to think about like, what, what do I do next? And then I thought the natural move would be like, uh, to move away from discourse to actual events. And I knew that all this data is now available. So I wrote a proposal to the, to the Hong Kong General Research Fund to fund a study that collects this data and codes it and then systematically analyzes it. I certainly would, would be keen to hear about what the sort of hand coding looks like, what the collection process is. I think probably for most of us, we would imagine this is a very 
data difficult or data poor environments. How were you able to collect a sample of sort of 3,000 protests where you had sufficient information to know how to code these? When I wrote the proposal, uh, I actually checked that back up, what I wrote at that time. Uh, I, I, there, there were some early databases available uh, that I looked into, for instance, for the, from the Duihua Foundation in, in, um, in Hong Kong, and also another one at CHK, and some other early research. And then I tried to extrapolate, like, okay, how much will I find? The original idea was I had a sample of 40 cities, and I kind of extrapolated that I'd find about 100 cases per year. And I thought, okay, I collect everything from 2007 to 2016, and I estimated to get like uh, something like a thousand cases altogether. And that's how I calculated my research funding. And it, it turned, turned out when I started collecting that data, I should say from four types of sources. So that is Chinese speaking, non-mainland Chinese media. So particularly Hong Kong and Taiwanese media, uh, English-speaking international media, then all sorts of you know, what I call dissident websites, uh, something like Yu or Liu uh, Tianwang, um, these kinds of websites that some specialists may know, and social media. And that was a big game changer. And social media came from a blog run by two Chinese activists who for over three years systematically every day collected all protest events that they could get their hands on on Weibo. And they all together uh, collected something like 70,000 events from the whole country between 2013 and 16. And in my uh, data set, I only collected those from three cities, Chongqing, Shanghai, and uh, Guangzhou. And that really made the difference. So we actually looked at that in, in detail in another paper, but 93% uh, of the cases I collected were from social media through that blog. And 88% of these were exclusively on social media. Christoph, can I just ask a quick question? Can you give us an example or a qualitative sense of, of what these posts look like? Are these individuals who are reporting that they heard about a protest? Are these individuals who have been, who have participated in a protest? And, and how do you, I guess a follow-up, how do you assess the quality or accuracy of the, of the information that's coming through over social media? Like in, in that case, uh, part of the, you know, the early collection was done by the, by these activists. So they collected often several posts on the same event. And then you can, uh, a typical post looks like there are a few photos, uh, pictures, then some text, uh, oftentimes by bystanders or by activists themselves who want to put that on social media to, you know, attract attention. And maybe then you see like a, a few pictures of people holding up banners, like, the typical small protests, and you, you would have to know that, probably in, uh, relevant information for, for listeners, the large majority of protests in China are very, very small. So they're like 20, 10 to 20 people. So my, my, my lower uh, bar was 10, at least 10. And oftentimes we really counted people on the pictures, <laughs> head counts. I mean, they, they did a lot of verification. Me and my, a colleague of mine actually talked to them and asked them how they did it. Um, and what we did then was also to kind of check out some background. For instance, if, if a company was mentioned, then we would like check and does this company exist? Is it really in the city where, where we are and where we think it is and so on. And then what you also have to do is to establish some baselines where you can establish if something happened or not. So for instance, did repression happen or not? 
is it that you don't see repression because the information is just too there's not enough information there you know there's just one picture and a, a little bit of text or is there no repression because there was really no repression so what i did was to establish some low low bars so there has to be at least this and that amount of text or at least this and that amount of uh, usable pictures to determine if there was really no repression or not. Uh, if that bar was not met, I would code that as missing. So uh, in my repression uh, indicator, I actually have like, and just check it out, like something like close to 40% missing cases where I should not feel confident enough to make that judgment. So then, then I, I collected the data, had three coders in the end, sit on there with a coding scheme, which you develop in advance and you train them. And then you need to see if they code consistently. So there are some you know, mechanisms to do that. And then code as much as you can. Let's now dig into this. There are protests that happen all the time for lots of reasons. Protests in response to sort of you know, contingent events. But you're looking at a very specific type of protest or, or protests that are around specific moments in time. And that is, you know, Mingan Shirchi, so sensitive periods. I guess as a basic question, what is a what is the threshold for a sensitive period? And then also I wonder if you can just unpack a little bit. Obviously, many of us would think of June 4th as being a sensitive period. That's a national sensitive period. What is the lower bounds of what a sensitive period? period would look like, uh, you know, out in a locality. Can you give us a qualitative sense of what the kind of the edge cases of, of a sensitive protest? Is this kind of an anniversary of when a peasant died in, in another protest? What, what might this look like the farther you get out of Beijing? Yeah, what I did is um, to basically distinguish between uh, local and national sensitive periods and then between what I call or what others call focal events and disruptive events. So what is a focal event? A focal event is something like June 4th, uh, which everyone knows, and that's very important, uh, in advance. So these kinds of events can serve off what you know, political scientists call as uh, coordinating mechanisms. So if you cannot coordinate to uh, lay down flowers to protest against the regime, what is the time when you would do that in the absence of coordination with others. So probably you would pick June 4th, or um, well, that would be a very likely date to, to pick. Um, so the state is, knows that and uh, is very nervous about it. So that's why around June 4th, uh, you would see like heightened security um, measures, particularly everywhere in Beijing, perhaps also elsewhere. Disruptive events. So I was thinking about, okay, what is a sensitive period? Like this Mingan Shizhi is something that is, every Chinese would know that, but then <laughs> what is it actually? Another one is what I call disruptive event. That is like things that happen without somebody knowing about it. So that could be something like, uh, in my case, also uh, the purge of a corrupt official, a, a protest in Hong Kong or Taiwan, and these, these kinds of suddenly appearing uh, incidents. The, the Chinese uh, system actually conceptualized these as uh, so sudden, sudden public incidents and it has measures in place at every level of hierarchy what is supposed to be done uh, when something like that happens. Uh, so that, that is another kind of possible sensitive period that could trigger protest. And we know that from, from history, for instance, the death of uh, Huyabang triggered the protest uh, in 1989. So the, the authorities are very much aware of that. 
So that's a that's a classification of the types of protests. Now I wonder if we can go to the flip the coin, so to speak, and now talk about how the state responds to these. You, you've got you talk about two different types of of repression. There's preemptive repression and responsive repression. Um, can you give us an explanation of what's the difference in these? And also, as just a methodological question, I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you measure. Repression. You talked a little bit about this, you know, early on, but I, I'd love if you could unpack it. I guess what is the what is the outer bounds for what repression looks like in in response to uh, these sorts of protests? The obvious one, what I mentioned before, is uh, what I call responsive repression. So that is repression that happens in response to to a contentious event. So. Uh, in democracies uh, or like in places where protest is institutionalized, that is that's basically all repression. So there's a protest, police is there, somebody throws a bottle, then some pushing and shoving begins, and then in the end you have arrests. So that's one thing that is relatively easy to measure with with some caveats, of course, that I just mentioned. The more problematic one is what I call preemptive repression. So, uh, and that is what autocracies uh, use a lot. And there's a lot of evidence from China that that is happening. So that would be trying to prevent a protest or threatening event from happening. That could be preventive arrests. And that's also documented in research that prior to focal events, um, there will be more arrests of political dissidents than usual. Or, you know, using kind of social, people, uh, scholars have called it relational repression, you know, try to work through family networks and, 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 and job networks to prevent people from taking to the street. The problem is, that's very hard to measure. So how do you measure something that does not happen? So um, there's no perfect solution to that. What I did was to look at and then the daily frequencies, the daily number of protests that happened at, at different times. So if I find that in certain dates, so these sensitive periods you know, before focal events or after disruptive events, there is uh, statistically significantly fewer protests than and are controlled for all kinds of other confounding factors, then it is probably the result of preemptive repression. But a caveat is that it could be because the state actively does something, you know, sends security officials to tell you, you don't take to the street tomorrow <laughs> because we have the National People's Congress meeting or because people voluntarily don't do it because they expect there will be more responses. So that's hard to disentangle. I, it's, I, I, I could not think of a perfect solution to, to measure that. So it's the second best solution, yeah. Going back to the sensitive events, I wonder if there's any, or did you find any difference in repressive tactics by the state in response to a sensitive event like an anniversary, again, we keep thinking of June 4th only because that's the most prominent here, versus a sensitive event that would be a local, you know, as you talk about a gathering of, of local political elites, let's say it's a provincial MPC or a national level MPC. So just a an event that's part of the normal political calendar. Is there any distinction in repressive response, either in type or intensity, in relation to those two different types of events? When we look at uh, preventive repression or the the, the number of protests at these certain times, you, you find a pretty clear pattern. And that is, um, sorry, central level focal events uh, induce significantly lower amounts of protests. 
So this would be like the Lianghui in in March. Lianghui, yes, um, and particularly uh, protests in highly visible city centers. So uh, in these districts where there's you know a lot of like political institutions or um, you know commercial centers and this, and the effects are even stronger. And that's also what I was what I was expecting. So uh, when when something of national significance happens, you see significantly fewer protests although it's 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 not a standstill it's like Lianghui induces like 14 percent fewer protests doesn't mean there are none yeah can, can i ask christoph as a follow-up is is that because would-be protesters have internalized that there are significant costs to protesting during those periods or is that because national level events don't resonate to the extent that local events do. I hear think of the famous saying by former Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, that all politics is local. You know, your, your, your passions are more likely to be moved by a gathering of local elites because those are around issues or you feel like you might have more of a ability to affect an outcome rather than, you know, a national level. Do, do we, are we able to distinguish what is the prime motivator behind that more subdued protest environment? We can't do it empirically. I can just speculate. And, and we have some, some case study research that, that also kind of observes similar patterns. So my interpretation would be for local level events, yeah, there's probably sensitivity. You, you might run the risk of uh, more repression, although that's not what I find. I'll say that later. But I think the uh, temptation is stronger to take to the streets because when, for instance, local elites meet in the local people's congress local consultative conference meetings then you can people perceive you have a higher likelihood of getting their attention and that's what they want uh, but with, if you're in guangzhou and the national people's congress meets it's not particularly likely that it's expensive to get out there yeah, I mean, uh, then I, I think the, the rationale changes and the, um, you know, the potential costs of mobilizing on these days uh, outweigh the potential benefits in the, in the minds of protesters. That's what, what I would think. Perhaps it is also the case that because the repressive apparatus is geared towards protecting the center, that in these times there is just more preventive repression going on. But I don't know that. Great. Now I want to just move on to talk about the type of protest or, or what you learned about the protests in the period that you studied. So this is January 2014 to May 2016. I'm just actually curious, uh, as a moment in time, what can you tell us about the types of protests that, that you were seeing? You know, I know this is 3,000 hand-coded cases, but just anything that sticks out to you in terms of what the protests were about or, or how the state was responding that, that you find salient? That, that's actually not part of this paper. Uh, that's, that's some um, work I'm, I'm, I'm st I still have to do. But what really sticks out is that the large majority of protests are workers-related issues. So by far, I, I don't have the number off the top of my, top of my head now, but... These are dominating, uh, and they are also quite seasonal. So there's a, there's a huge spike before and around Chinese New Year, uh, probably when when uh, uh, migrant workers want to go home and push uh, employers to, to pay them their wages um, and these kinds of things. Otherwise, um, it's a lot of things. It's uh, complaints about uh, local policy implementation, um, fees. 
some sort of events of fraud, sometimes also protests against corruption. Um, there are also political protests, and that's actually something I'm, I, I continue working with the state and all. That's something I, I, I just read the um, almost 60 uh, events um, that we coded as um, political, uh, making anti-regime claims or supporting like dissidents who've been imprisoned. But these are close to 3%. So it's not, it's not nothing, but that's something. Yeah. That's actually maybe just to the last few minutes we have here. I wondered if we could actually explore that a little bit, by which I mean, for those of us who aren't following this as closely as you are, I think there's a tendency to equate the number of protests or just protests in general as being a destabilizing feature for the regime. I remember, you know, I don't think they published the, the number anymore, but remember you know, when they, I think it was Cass that was publishing that number on the number of mass protests a year. And it's funny, I still read in articles today that try to paint a picture of sort of a, of a regime under threat. You still see that data point, you know, every year there's 500,000 mass incidents. So I think there's a natural tendency to view protest as very much wrapped into regime legitimacy and, and rising or protest as indications that, you know, the fundamental stability of the regime is under threat. I, I want to, I don't want to ask that question in a loaded way, but you're focused on this in great detail. Can you help give some broad framework remarks for those of us who aren't following this? How should we conceptualize protests very specifically as they relate to regime stability? Is there a lot of daylight between the governance stability of the CCP and protests? Or do you see these protests in some way as challenging, in a fundamental way, the political authority that, that the CCP has? Well, in terms of claims or in terms of the, the actors that are involved, as I just said, there's only like close to 3%, very, a very low percentage that uh, could count as like overtly political. So in a sense, uh, challenging some aspects of the fundamental political order. So that's very little. I mean, the others do not make claims against the regime. They make claims to further their interests. And sometimes they make claims against local officials um, and complain. And sometimes, oftentimes, they also want to get help from higher levels of government. That's why they take to the street. So that's that's something that, you know, Kevin O'Brien and these people uh, have already figured out. And I, I'd say, you know, this research also kind of highlights that the state is actually pretty confident in managing these types of protests. Because what I, my expectation when I went in this was, for instance, around June 4th, there would just be nothing. There would be a complete standstill of contention. And that's, that is not what I find. Uh, so June 4th is not significant in terms of the number of uh, protests in Shanghai, uh, Beijing and Guangzhou. And, you know, there are reductions in these national focal events and disruptive events, but they are not, uh, contention does not come to a standstill. So that shows to me that the state is actually confident that it can selectively deal with those protesters, those few who have some fundamental grievances against the regime and let the other types of more bread and butter kind of normal contention run its way, even under these kinds of sensitive periods conditions. And what I did not mention just now, in, uh, for local level focal events, I find that particularly in city centers, the number of protests has actually significantly increased. So people 
take to the streets and I interpret that as probably because they think they can get the attention of local elites, they turn out in higher numbers than usual on these uh, on these dates. Yeah, so that is what I would say to this. I, I, I would not say um, protest contention is part of normal politics in China and it's it's not institutionalized, but it's pretty much routinized. If we were really simplifying this, does protest exist because the party sees some value in a sort of steam release? Or does protest exist because the party just doesn't want to pay the price or have the capacity to clamp down on every and all protest? All of this to an extent, I would say. I think Liz Perry, uh, I don't know if she really said that, but I heard she was saying that if the Chinese state wanted to protest to end, they could do that tomorrow. So if the orders would go out that whenever somebody takes to the street, there would be severe repression, the state would be capable of doing that. No doubts for a while at least. But they don't want to do that because I think they, yeah, they want to give people the capacity to release some steam, maybe also get feedback. That's an insight from previous research uh, on how their local officials actually operate because they don't know. There's lots of principal agent dilemmas involved in Chinese governance. Yeah, that's what I would say to that. So final, final question then, and maybe you've just answered it. I was going to ask a speculative question about the trajectory of protests under you know, a third Xi Jinping term. It sounds like even imagining that there's been a kind of a step shift in data surveillance capabilities with COVID-19, you imagine some of the public health related technological surveillance measures are just going to be enduring. Just as a side anecdote, an academic visiting from China uh, to CSIS this week told me that whereas when he wanted to enter campus before, he used to just show his ID. Now he has to show his face for a facial scan. I would imagine that's not going away. So you'd, you'd imagine that there's this kind of architecture of surveillance, which has evolved under Xi Jinping and given a rocket booster by COVID-19 that will, that will stay in place. But what I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, we should expect even under a third term Xi Jinping, an increasingly autocratic China, that protest will be routinized. It will still be a component of civic life because, as you say, there may be some operational value to the party and for a little bit of steam release and also a little bit of a learning opportunity. Does that sound right? And any other thoughts you have about, you know, if, if you were doing a study of protest 10 years from now, summarizing the, the 2020s, what do you think you'd find? Yeah, we can only speculate on this. And uh, as, as my, my data is from the early C period, so uh, probably there have been some changes already before, before COVID-19 uh, emerged. But as it stands now, I mean, from anecdotal evidence and also from more systematic evidence that, for instance, my, my colleague Christian Goebel at, at my department, he's collecting uh, events from, from Weibo in, in, in real time. We see that protest is still there. Yeah, um, just a few days ago, I saw like quite well-organized protesters trying to put pressure on a real estate developer that failed. Like they had their, their banners printed out, you know, obviously a printing factory was willing to print their protest banners. <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, uh, it's not going to go away, but uh, there are changes. And um, uh, in, in studies that uh, we've also done in the special issue Journal of Contemporary China, in which this was published, some others have looked into repression over time and all indicators point to more repression over recent years, but not to the extent that everything is kind of coming to a standstill. I, I don't think that will happen anytime soon. I see the desire on the part of the leadership, I think, to use in particular technology to replace some of the positive benefits of protests as a, for instance, signal, the signaling device on policy implementation, kind of to replace that, uh, establish all kinds of complaint forums uh, on the internet. I don't see that this is as effective uh, as taking to the streets in terms of if you want to get your voice heard. And uh, they all, there's also probably the, the desire to use these means to, um, you know, for surveillance to uh, make preemptive repression uh, even more effective. My, my intuition would be the, the authorities would not be wise to use all the means of surveillance and repression they have to completely stifle this type of claim making in the public sphere. Um, and I. My hunch would be they won't, but uh, who knows? You, you've just landed at the end here on, I think, a really fascinating topic. Hopefully this will be a future paper of yours, the extent to which they might come to believe that technology can provide a, an information substitute for some of the non-digital forms of, of protests and contestation. It, it's interesting. I just, when I look across other areas, I almost wonder if they might come to believe the hype of what they can do with technology, you know, new tools of sentiment analysis such that we can monitor WeChat and Weibo. And so therefore we have no need for some of the release valves you, you talked about. I think you're right that if they were purely rational, they, they would be able to understand that technology is not a pure substitute. But I think this is a really interesting question. There seems to be a degree of techno-utopianism in the party that sort of technology is this great substitute for harder, more structural reforms, or in this case, some of the the learning opportunities that messier, you know, real world protests offer. So anyway, I, that's a, a call to say, I really hope you explore that because I feel like there's some really extraordinary implications for governance in thinking about how technology might be used or what, I guess, critically what the party thinks it can do with technology that it can't. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I've, I've seen, um, like uh, pro like research proposals or news where uh, uh, research by CAS, for instance, um, uh, Chinese Academy of Social Science, uh, back in 2008, I think, where they tr uh, had projects to predict protests. I've seen that numerous times. I don't think anyone succeeded yet. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a, a larger project by the Europe, funded by the European Research Council on the social credit system running here since uh, last year. So yeah, that's also working in, in this direction to an to a larger extent now. <laughs> well, Christoph, I want to thank you. It was, first of all, really fascinating conversation. I recommend everyone read the paper, Defending Stability Under Threat, Sensitive Periods and the Repression of a Protest in Urban China. This was published in a 2021, volume 30 edition of Journal of Contemporary China. I should also note that this is uh, open access. So uh, folks who, who haven't spent the $400 getting a subscription to Journal of Contemporary China 
can go uh, download this one uh, legally for free, which is a nice, uh, which is a, a nice benefit. So, Christoph, really appreciate the conversation, appreciate the research, and and look forward to to future work you're doing in this this really important area. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 